Hi everyone, you're listening to the October 2021 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and you'll be pleased to hear that I've finally scheduled my first face-to-face client meeting since the start of the COVID pandemic. While it'll be lovely to see people in person, I can't say I'm particularly looking forward to putting on a tie for the first time in nearly two years. Anyway, it's not until December, so I guess there's a decent chance we'll be back in lockdown before then. Uh, right, John Foster and Anne Oliver will be joining me later on to talk about the DC Pensions consumer journey. But in the meantime, I guess we should get on with some news. The government's announced that the state pension triple lock will be suspended for one year. The triple lock normally means that the state pension increases each year in line with the higher of average earnings growth, inflation or 2.5%. This year's earnings growth figures unusually high due to the unwinding of the furlough scheme, among other COVID-related things, so the government's decided to drop the earnings element for one year. That means the next state pension increase will just be based on the higher of inflation and 2.5%, although looking at the latest inflation data, that could still be a pretty substantial increase. You may remember me flagging this as a potential issue over a year ago, but for the avoidance of doubt, I can't give you any help with next week's lottery numbers or the winner of next year's Grand National. At the same time, the government published proposals for a new health and social care levy from April 2022. For the coming tax year, this will take the form of a 1.25% increase in both employee and employer national insurance contributions. Then, from the following tax year, it will become a separate levy, which also applies to people over state pension age who are still working. There's also going to be a 1.25% increase in dividend tax rates. The Chancellor also confirmed that the autumn budget would be on the 27th of October, so I'm sure we'll have more news on that next month. A whole raft of new powers came into force for the pensions regulator on the 1st of October. And just ahead of this, I mean just, uh, TPR published its new criminal offences policy. Just as a reminder, the two new criminal offences introduced under the Pension Schemes Act 2021 are avoidance of employer debt and conduct that risks accrued scheme benefits. These apply to all parties rather than just those connected with a scheme employer, and they can result in unlimited fines or imprisonment. Following a consultation earlier this year, TPR has extended its guidance substantially, clarifying specific areas and adding detailed examples. This follows criticism from the industry that the original draft criminal powers policy was too broad and insufficiently clear. The revised policy also restates the policy intent more clearly. It's not the intention to prosecute normal corporate behaviour, and it's only the more extreme examples of intentional or reckless behaviour that will be punished. That said, much of the policy remains principles-based, with both the underlying scope and the potential application of the powers to individuals remaining very broad. We therefore expect it will take a period of time before there's a clear picture of exactly how TPR will police these powers as a whole. Alongside the new criminal powers policy, TPR has also issued a draft code of practice and some guidance relating to the expansion of their existing contribution notice powers. As if that wasn't enough, there's also a consultation on draft policies for TPR's approach to cases where it could use more than one of its powers, its monetary penalty powers, and its information gathering powers. This will run until the 22nd of December, which does at least feel slightly longer than we've had for a lot of other consultations recently. The Pension Protection Fund has released its draft rules for the 2022-23 levy year, so this is the one that schemes will be paying around autumn 2022. There are only a few minor changes to the levy calculation compared with the previous year. However, changes to the PPF's assumptions driven by improved insurance company pricing mean that the total amount the PPF's collecting will be around 20% lower than the previous year. 
Around 80% of schemes that pay a risk-based levy can expect to see a reduction in their levy, but as usual, the actual impact will vary significantly by scheme, so it's worth speaking to your advisors about the impact of your scheme and any potential mitigation options. The draft rules are subject to consultation with this running until the 9th of November. The final rules should then be published towards the end of December, although we don't really expect any material changes from the draft based on previous years. There's going to be another review around the same time next year, and by that time, the full implications of the COVID-19 pandemic will be a bit clearer, so we could see some bigger changes in the PPF's approach at that point. The DWPs launched a consultation on changes to the notifiable events regime, following on from provisions in the Pension Schemes Act 2021. Once the proposed regulations come into force, the list of notifiable events will be expanded and it will cover much more common corporate activity than it did before. That will include companies selling a material proportion of a scheme employer or granting security on a debt to give it priority over any scheme debt. Companies will also have to issue an accompanying statement to the trustees in TPR if one of the new events occurs. This will need to state how any adverse effects on the scheme will be mitigated and provide details of any communication with the trustees. As if you weren't already terrified enough by the story earlier on on criminal powers, there could be fines of up to a million pounds for failing to comply with the notifiable events framework. This consultation is open until the 27th of October. TPR and the Financial Conduct Authority have published a joint discussion paper on developing a common framework for measuring value for money in DC schemes. The aim of the two regulators is to drive a long-term focus on value for money across the pension sector. They propose a framework building on existing concepts that looks at value through three lenses, investment performance, customer service or scheme oversight, and costs and charges. Schemes would be expected to make data on these publicly available, and the framework would apply to all schemes regulated by the FCA and TPR, whether workplace or non-workplace. The regulators are inviting comments on the discussion paper by the 10th of December, with a statement on next steps to follow next year. And finally, Aon's latest DC scheme survey is now open for responses. This survey seeks the views of both sponsors and trustees at DC schemes of all sizes. The findings will be published in the new year, and anyone who completes the survey by the 27th of October will receive a complimentary copy of the survey report, together with a benchmarking report. If you're interested in completing the survey, please check out the link in the show notes. And if you'd like more information on this, or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. For today's interview, we're talking about the DC consumer journey. So I've wrote in a couple of colleagues who have spent a lot of time looking at this over the last few months. They're both first-time guests on this particular podcast, although frankly, I don't know how they've managed to avoid me for so long. It's John Foster from our DC team and Anne Oliver from our communications team. So John, just to kick things off, can you give us some background on the DC consumer journey and why we're talking about this now? Sure. Yes. Thanks, Ricky. And may I say it is an absolute honor to be on your uh, podcast um, I don't know how long, you know, I've been waiting for a long time for the invitation, but this is actually a, a, a call for input that has come from jointly from the pensions regulator and the financial conduct authority, which we're seeing more, more of now, which is a good thing, combination of uh, the two regulators working together. They're really looking at what else they can do to help engage customers, consumers, so that they can make informed decisions that lead to better pension savings outcomes. So again, laudable. Uh, in terms of an objective. They highlight the kind of decision-making, or as they say, the lack of it, 
that has such a key role in, in outcomes for members. And we at Aon agree that this is an absolutely key area of focus. We spend a lot of time talking and thinking about this. The extent to which regulators need to get involved is less clear, but um, they're showing a keen interest, which uh, we'll take as a positive at this stage. I guess the one thing that underpins all of this is the actual design of the scheme. How would you say that feeds into the DC consumer journey? Yes, uh, so some of the questions posed regarding decisions such as when to start saving, how much to save, and which savings vehicle to use can be driven by elements of scheme design. So to create an environment in which savers set off on a path that will lead to better outcomes. So auto enrolment's a great example, great start on the when to start point, as no decision is required. What follows is default levels of contribution and default investment. So it's important that scheme design sets a framework within which savers can focus on the decisions that will make a difference, knowing that they're in a good quality and good value arrangement. And once you've got your benefit design in place, I guess another thing that affects the journey is going to be the way the scheme and the members interact with each other. So, Anne, as a communications consultant, what does the DC consumer journey mean to you? And what kind of things can help to improve that journey for members? Well, the pensions consumer journey is no different to any other consumer journey. We want members to identify their personal need for pension savings, and then we want them to feel good about the choices they make. If we can also talk about how pension savings protect people's families and their overall financial security, we can then help to tell a story that is more than just about how big a pension pot is. So to do this, we dig below the surface about what makes people tick. There are a number of drivers that we need to deal with, and these include things like short-termism, risk aversion, confirmation bias, a lack of confidence in financial matters, overconfidence in financial matters. These are just examples. Um, another is anchoring, and this is where people pick a fund in the middle of a risk list and go with it regardless of whether it's appropriate for them. To give another example, the underlying behavioural issues of confirmation bias are the same in pension savings as they are in other areas. So a key theme that we can draw out from these learnings is that DC pensions need to focus on future decisions, i.e. can you do any better, rather than languish on current choices, which is going to be a turn-off to anyone. If we can help people to understand more clearly how they are making things better, it would be a win, but just informing them of how their previous decisions have led them to face a poor outcome is not likely to inspire them to act any differently. The other point here is that we also need to pay more attention to emotion, and this is where telling a good story comes in. To shift behaviour, there is still a lot to learn from advertising. Think of the most powerful adverts you remember, whether it's for Coca-Cola, Nike, or something completely different like the John Lewis Christmas advert. They are all about an emotional connection with something rather than the product itself. So in pensions, the mistake is just focusing on, on the product and how large or small someone's savings are likely to be without first telling them why they might want to have one. So have you got any examples of where that kind of emotional approach has worked in practice? Yes, for one client where there was an appetite to encourage members to pay contributions and gain an employer match, we prepared a series of emails that flagged to the individual how they could get access to it. Effectively, prompting the can you do better question. 
we made the emails personal and used the members' data to illustrate the value of the contributions. So the messaging was real and, and really quite hard hitting. Having raised interest, we then ensured the process for changing contributions for easy, a link on the email straight into the platform. Finally, in order to address concerns for the risk averse among the membership, what if I find I now can't afford it? We reminded them that the contribution levels can always be changed. Uh, regarding outcome, a further 20% of employees started making contributions and those that were paying contributions, over 40% were paying enough to secure the maximum company match. And uh, the percentage of members who logged onto the website increased by a third since our campaign began. So, you know, quite good uh, statistics to illustrate improved engagement. And John, have you got any similar examples along those lines? Yeah, I guess my, my example is one where there's it's, it's a combination of using those sort of techniques that Anne's described in relation to sort of engaging with, with the membership, but also using the hooks that, that the scheme design can provide in terms of, of, of getting to a, a good outcome for members. So this was for an employer who had a reasonably generous contribution structure, but members weren't engaging, weren't maximising the opportunities they had to benefit from matching. So what we were looking at, we undertook an exercise to uh, communicate with members, showing them what, what uh, contribution increase might have as an impact in terms of, of their outcomes, using a very simple, individualised personal statement, showing what that improvement could be. And following that, that activity, around 70% of the membership actually took an active decision to increase the contributions they were paying. Having done the before and after comparison on the level of benefit that members could expect to receive across the membership, the members that were unlikely to achieve a target that we set as a kind of an adequate level reduced from 40% of the membership down to just 15% due to the contribution increase as a result of that activity. Thanks, John. So, and just looking at the wider world of pension communications, what kind of trends are you seeing at the moment? The main trend is a move towards technology in order to engage with members via the very device that is literally within reach for most members at any time and night or day, their phone. Technology facilitates a little and often approach, uh, which for most schemes would not be affordable if carried out by post, for example. And the data that's held centrally on a pension platform can be deployed to segment the population for different initiatives. The aim must always be to interact with a member on an aspect of pension provision that will resonate with them in terms of relevance and timing. We're also seeing a greater use of video and the most effective length of video is, a, is about a minute and a half. So very short, just a very short interaction supporting the little and often approach that I mentioned earlier. And a more recent development is the use of personalized videos where the member views their own data forming part of the messaging. These are really impactful and generate the highest response rates. Most of our messages will have a decision for the member to make. And in order to smooth the way, we have to make enacting that decision easy. And here we look to technology again. And then finally, as communicators, we're very interested in results and we can get richer metrics from our campaigns. We'll know whether an email has been opened and we'll know if somebody has viewed a video and if so, whether they got to the end of it. So if I could just jump in there, I've got a, I, mean, I think a great example of using technology that Anne's already, already mentioned is 
the use of aggregation tools, which again can be made available on on mobile devices. I now use this the tool that uh, you know. Let, let's let's just give Aon a bit of a plug here that their Well One Money application, which I use on my mobile phone, is in constant use to tell me how much money I've spent on entertainment. Not very much over the last eighteen months, and, and other things. It can give you spending analysis. It can aggregate that with your bank accounts, your credit cards, etc. But importantly, it puts the pension in amongst that. So you can see alongside your bank account details of how well you're doing in relation to your to your pension savings. I think that's really important to bring it into a frame that A is familiar to people, is in constant use, um, but also puts puts pensions alongside other savings and uh, and expenditure. And just to wrap things up, what would you both say are the key takeaways or things that our listeners should be focusing on in this area at the moment? For me, the best way to engage with members is to establish an emotional connection. If we're emotionally invested in something, we're more likely to respond to messaging about it and we're more likely to act. And of course, underpinning this is a technology that facilitates the messaging in the first place. And for me, Ricky, I think it's it's just to make sure that you 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 let the scheme design do the heavy lifting to get people in in the right place. And it means that the focus that Anne's talking about can really be on those things that make a big difference to members and they can they can really engage in things that are important to them. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today. And hopefully it won't be another 32 episodes before you're back for a second appearance. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Ricky. Thank you, Ricky. Right, that's everything for today. Thanks again to my guests, Anne Oliver and John Foster, for bearing with me through a few minor technical glitches. And thanks to you for listening. I'm off to try and work out where I left my ties, but I'll be back next month. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or if you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.